Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. It's Exodus, chapter 2, starting to read at the first verse. Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe and her attendants were walking along the river bank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. One day... After Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labour. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Glancing this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, "'Why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew?' The man said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, What I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away. But Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to Uriel, their father, he asked them, Why have you returned so early? They answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? He asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become an alien in a foreign land. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. 
The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help, because of their slavery, went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. We've just sung, we will stand as children of the promise. And Father, we would pray this morning that you'd help us to do that, to understand the promises you've made to us. And in a world that is so difficult and so painful, help us to stand on these promises. In Jesus' name, amen. Please do take your seats. Do you open your Bibles again at that reading from Exodus chapter 2 on page 58 of the Church Bibles? And you might also find in the bundle you were given a little uh, overview of the sermon. Do you have that at the hand if you find that useful as we uh, track through this morning? Some of you will probably uh, know the story of the missionary Jim Elliott uh, back in the 1950s, so going back a fair few years now. Uh, from a young age, Jim had a real heart to tell people about Jesus, particularly people who had never heard about him before. And so as a young man, he headed off to Ecuador to go and live in a rainforest with a local tribe of Indians. It was always going to be hard because there was the barrier of culture and of course the language barrier. But initially, things seemed to go very well, very encouraging signs but then one day the, the, the team failed to radio back into the support group and they were worried so they sent a plane out to look for them and uh, the plane saw the five bodies of Jim and his friends uh, face down in the water downstream of the village, their bodies full of spears killed by the very people they had gone out to uh, tell the gospel to. Uh, Jim was 28 when he was killed and he left behind a wife and a young daughter It is hard to trust God in a world like that. It is particularly hard because of all the promises God has made to his people. We saw last week as we began our series in Exodus that God has made some wonderful promises to his people, eternal promises, uh, promises to grow one family into a great nation, ultimately the church, Uh, the promise of a land of peace and security where there's no suffering and, and heartache. Uh, the promise of blessing which undoes, undoes the curse of this world. And Jim's great passion was nothing more than to tell people about Jesus, which seems very much in line with one of God's promises, to grow a great people for himself, the church. And so why would God allow someone who is so passionate and so in line with his promise to die aged 28? What about closer to home? Uh, We look around this country and uh, we see a church which seems to be on the back foot in so many ways, uh, shrinking in lots of areas, lots of people faithfully preaching the gospel, and yet still it seems that this country is turning away from the gospel in huge numbers. And we might think, well, where is God's promise to grow a great people for himself? Uh, What's happening with that promise now in this world, in this country or even closer to home. Perhaps we've uh, experienced a marriage full of tears, 
or we've had to watch a child struggle through life at school, understanding the world. Perhaps our career is just fading away, or our health is failing. It is so often hard to relate our experiences as Christians in this world over here with the great promises that God has made over here about being part of a great nation and having a wonderful future and that new creation and blessing. It is hard to trust God when the world is like this. As we turn to Exodus 2 this morning, we discover that, in fact, our world today is very similar to the world of Exodus 2. And just as today it can be so hard for God's people to understand and engage with his promises for the world, so it was hard for God's people then to understand and engage with his promises back then in that world. But as we see how God is faithful to his promises, no matter what the context is back then, so we are, I think, able to see how he is at work today in this difficult world. And so I think we get great help to understand how we can remain faithful to him in a difficult world. So to a people who find it hard to trust in a world like this, uh, the first point is this, don't doubt God's plans, even if they are veiled. Exodus 1 finishes on a real cliffhanger. If you were here last week, you'll know that the whole nation of Egypt has been recruited by Pharaoh to um, attack the new baby boys of the Hebrews. It's the stuff of nightmares. It's the kind of thing that parents wake up at night in a cold sweat wondering, was that dream true? Is it actually happening? Well, normally it's not true today, but back then for the Hebrew parents, it was true. There was a whole nation out to hunt down their baby boys. Imagine the fear and the hopelessness of the end of chapter one. And the chapter ends with that great question, how will God intervene to protect his people and his promises? Well, as chapter two begins, he doesn't seem to do anything. Verses one to 10 span 40 years. We know that from other parts of the Bible. And not once do we see that God does anything for this nation facing death and bloodshed. But there is something going on. You see, the camera zooms away from a nation in agony down to just one family in agony. Did you notice verse one? Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. You can imagine this scene, can't you? A moment of great joy and celebration, a new life has entered the world, followed very quickly by fear and dread. What's gonna happen to this boy? You can imagine, can't you, the parents trying to, to hush the baby and to kind of settle it, trying to listen out for footsteps in the alleyway. Is anyone hearing? And of course, babies cry. They cry a lot. And you can imagine in the nights as the crying rings out, wondering if this will be the last night. Has someone heard? It's a desperate scene. But why are we being told about this particular baby? Because you can imagine across the whole nation of Israel, this scene was being replicated across lots of households, parents living in fear with their young baby boys. 
So why this family? Well, what happens next is an extraordinary sequence of coincidences. And I think we are meant to realize beyond a shadow of a doubt that these are not coincidences, but they are, in fact, God at work, keeping his promises to his people. How do we know? Well, look at all the clues. Verse 3, we're told that uh, Moses is put into a basket. Uh, The word there for basket is quite a rare word. It's only found one other place in the Bible. When God put Noah into an ark, Ark, basket, same word. And so as the reader of the Bible, we know that God is good at rescuing people using an ark. And here this baby is put into an ark. And then the coincidences just keep on tumbling through the rest of the story, don't they? Uh, Pharaoh's daughter just happened to go down for a bath at just the right time in just the right place. She just happened to see a basket and we just happened to be curious. She just happened, verse 6, to feel sorry for the baby that she was meant to, to kill. Do you see, she knows, verse 6, that this is a Hebrew baby, and yet she doesn't kill it. Uh, Verse 7, Moses' sister just happens to be around and well-placed to intervene. Uh, And then verse 9, this baby just happens to end up back being nursed by his very mother, and she even gets paid for it. I can imagine some moms would love to be paid to look after uh, their children. Remarkable coincidences. And then perhaps most remarkable of all, verse 10, this Hebrew baby is taken into the very courts of the enemy, Pharaoh. Coincidences? No. This is God at work to rescue a helpless baby. Only God could have pulled off this number of coincidences to bring about a remarkable rescue for this helpless little boy. And I think this remarkable rescue of one boy is going to point us forward to the remarkable rescue of a helpless nation. We read on for that later on in the series. But I think even here now, in in the pain and confusion of Egypt, under all the toil and dread of the people of God, we are seeing that in a very veiled way, not in a public way, not announced from street by street, God has remembered his promises and he is at work doing something to bring about his promises to his people. He is a rescuing God. And so don't doubt God's plan. God's plan to rescue and multiply his people even if they are veiled. And this is how God works again and again in the Bible. I think of Joseph just back a few chapters in the end of Genesis how this obscure boy ended up being the prime minister of Egypt through a whole series of coincidences? No. God at work to bring about his promises to his people. And again and again in the Bible, we see God stepping in, often in ways that leave us confused and puzzled, in subtle and unusual ways, stepping in to bring about his plans and purposes for his people. Even today. Remember those famous words in Romans 8, verse 28, when Paul says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. In all things, even through the kind of evil and suffering we are seeing in Exodus 
chapter 2. For it was the very evil and suffering of Pharaoh's um, genocide that actually led to Moses being in the palace and ready to go. Jim's, Jim Elliot's widow, Elizabeth, uh, went on to live a long and fruitful life. In fact, she just died a few months ago, um, well on in years. And um, as uh, people marked her death and uh, looked back on the legacy of her life and the life of Jim Elliot, it was remarkable to see how people were able to digest what God had done, looking at the big picture of the 60 years or so between Jim's death and Elizabeth's death. And one thing that was so remarkable, which we could not see at the time, anyone who was watching on back then in the 1950s, was that Jim's death looked like an absolute disaster, and it was. But after his death, as people heard about his example and his passion for telling others about Christ, well, a whole generation of missionaries were mobilized. We don't know how many, but dozens, hundreds of people headed out to the mission field because of Jim's example. And so now the legacy of his death is that, what, thousands of people have now heard about Jesus far more than Jim himself could ever have told in his own lifetime. Just one example of how God's plan progresses. Even if it's veiled and hidden and mysterious, his plan to grow his people, to build a church, is unstoppable. I think of this crisis unfolding in Syria Millions of people have been displaced. There is no doubt that what is happening there is terrible, real suffering and agony and anguish, hopelessness. And as a Christian watching it, we don't know what God is doing. But is it possible that in the years to come, we will look back to this crisis and see that somehow God used the displacement of millions of people to bring about hundreds, thousands of gospel conversations, people hearing about Jesus who would never heard about Jesus back in their home country of Syria. Maybe there will be a great harvest of people saved, the church built out of this agony. I don't know, but God has a tendency of working like that in history. I think of the church in China over the last 30 years, under great persecution from the government. It looked from the outside world as if God's purposes and plans in China was being uh, quashed completely. And yet now we've seen behind closed doors, in a veiled and yet certain way, God has been growing his people, keeping his promises. What about our own lives? Is it possible that God could use pain and evil and suffering in our own lives to further his promises and plans in the world? I don't know. We lose our job. And because we have more free time, we're able to talk to our neighbors more or spend more time with the family. And someone hears about Jesus. And maybe it's our own failing health means that we are in the hospital more often and we actually bump into other people who are also experiencing failing health. And through that, they hear about Jesus. I don't know. But God has a habit, an ability to work in veiled and hidden ways to progress his unstoppable plan. For he is a rescue God and he can rescue people who look beyond rescue. And so Exodus 2 reminds us, I think, that we should not doubt God's plans even if they are veiled. Next, don't doubt God's power 
even if there's failure. We pick up the story again of uh, Moses, uh, who's now, verse 11, grown up. And I think we're meant to see as we look at this uh, man that he has a brilliant CV as, uh, for the job of uh, rescue of God's people. And just look at how his CV is fleshed out in this section. Uh, so he's, um, he's raised by a Hebrew mother, so he's got his foot in the kind of Israel camp. He understands their history and God's promises to them, but he also has a foot in the Egyptian camp, so he has access to power. He's well-connected, well-educated too. He's free. And uh, we also see he's a man of great compassion. So verse 11 One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his people were and watched them at their hard labor. You see, he's not so posh and privileged that he doesn't care about the the oppression of the low ones, his people. He goes out and sees them suffering and he cares about them. And then it's pretty clear that uh, he's pretty useful in a fight. Uh, So verse 12, uh, he goes all kind of Bruce Willis and uh, he steps in and kills an Egyptian. Uh, just as a, an aside, is, is he guilty of murder at this point? Uh, I don't think we actually know. We're not given enough evidence to put him on trial for murder. Um, we do know that the New Testament writers, as they write about what happens here, uh, thinking of Hebrews 11, they actually write... Um, with, with praise for Moses, calling him a man of faith, being willing to leave the courts of Pharaoh and be counted among his own people. So whatever happens here in this verse, what is clear is that Moses is a man of faith. He is no weakling. He is strong and able, physically impressive, I think. And again, later on in verse 17, he, he rescues some damsels in distress from a band of uh, naughty shepherds. And so he is a man who is well-placed to be a rescuer of God's people. In fact, I reckon if you were to look around the nation of Israel, he was probably the best option that, uh, in that time. And so you might be forgiven for thinking that this man is the man who's going to pull off the rescue that God's people need, the exodus that they are longing for. But it doesn't happen. Not yet. Because chapter 2 is a chapter of utter failure for Moses as a would-be rescuer. Verse 13, he tries to break up a fight between uh, two of his own. But in verse 14, uh, they push him away. They reject his authority over them. And it gets worse. Verse 15, Pharaoh hears about uh, the killing. And he has to flee away from Egypt into the land of Midian. And by the end of the story, we find Moses out in the middle of nowhere, um, far from God's people. Uh, Yes, he's been blessed with a wife and with children, but just sense the note of despair in verse 22 as he, uh, we pick up the story, we read in verse 22, Zipporah gave birth to a son and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become an alien in a foreign land. And that is not a good place for one of God's people to be. You know, a person who has the promise of a land and the promise of being part of a great nation to say, I'm an alien in a foreign land. That is a a note of deep distress for one of God's people. And so this attempt by Moses to pull off a rescue is a failure. And we might wonder, 
why does God allow this man to fail? You see, God's people desperately need a rescue. Here is a, a, a likely candidate. It seems to be a perfect time for the, the rescue to take place, and yet here is a complete flop of an exodus. Why? Well, I think the answer is because God wants us to be utterly convinced that only God can pull off an exodus. Only God can pull off a rescue. I think verse 14 is is a key verse in this passage. The Israelites uh, say to Moses, who made you ruler and judge over us? And the answer at this point in the story is, well, no one has made Moses a ruler and a judge. Not yet. Moses acts here without God around, without God's backing. Oh, we know that in the future, in the coming chapters, God is going to turn up. And when the real exodus happens, boy, is it powerful and impressive. When God is there, he can rescue. But in chapter two, God is not yet with Moses. And he wants us to see that only God can pull off a rescue. I wonder if we've really got our heads around the implications of what that means for us. Thinking about perhaps our friends and family who do not yet know Jesus, who perhaps we might say are still kind of cut off from God, perhaps in slavery to sin, not yet free. Do we really believe that only God can rescue them and pull off a rescue in their lives? Well, I guess it's easy for us in a, in a larger church here to, to rely on good publicity and slick events and a good guest speaker and um, you know, good techniques that we've uh, been told about. But these are all good things, but none of them can rescue a person who's trapped in slavery and needs to be free. Only God can pull off a rescue. And as we try to make sense of this failure in Exodus 2, I think we are to realize that that at times God allows his people to be very weak and very frail so that we are completely clear on where the power lies. And I wonder if at times throughout church history, God allows his church to look so weak in order for his people to be on their knees praying and completely clear that they are powerless and God is powerful. I think that's how Exodus 2 works. It's clearing the deck for us to long for a true rescuer who can really pull off an Exodus. I think also in our own lives, that's often how God helps us to, to learn about him. Uh, how does Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 4? We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. And so when we experience failure, perhaps as a church, trying to to grow God's people, and things don't seem to work, and we wonder why God isn't doing something more, well, perhaps here's one angle in on the issue. We need to be those who pray and are completely convinced that only God can pull off a rescue. Don't doubt God's power, even if there's failure. And finally, as we move to a close, don't doubt God's heart, even if there's delay. So uh, Moses has failed, and he's off 
a long way away from Egypt. And we're told, verse 23, that there's a long period of time that now passes. We know again from elsewhere that that's, that's 40 years that now passes, just in a few verses. Which means that from the time that Pharaoh announced his plan of genocide, it's been 80 years that God's people have lived in Egypt under slavery, under the threat of death, with no obvious sign of God acting. It is a long time, a lifetime. And so God's people are desperate. Verse 23, the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. And so then verse 24, God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. Now these are wonderful words, but as we stop and think about them, they are profoundly troubling words as well. In what sense does God now remember and hear? Are we to think that he was somehow asleep for two chapters and a whole generation of agony, 400 years almost of slavery and anguish? It does sometimes feel, doesn't it, as if God is asleep in our lives, very absent, very distant, it feels. But no, God has not been asleep. He has not been absent. There's been so many clues in these chapters of God quietly but steadily working out his purposes. And so how should we understand this verse of God hearing and remembering? Well, perhaps this helps. Uh, When my family were uh, still living back in the U.S., we went on a fantastic summer holiday. Um, We drove from the north of the U.S. in Pennsylvania all the way down the country to the south, to Florida, to, to Disneyland. And uh, it was a three-day journey. And uh, you can imagine what my parents went through th- for those three days with four young kids in the car. You know, are we almost there yet? No. When will we be there yet? In a little while. How much longer? Just wait and see. Are we there yet? No, no, no. And as children, it's frustrating, isn't it? Come on, come on Dad, what's the whole point of this journey? Three days is a long time for a, a five-year-old lad. But then one day, the third day, uh, after the answer being no, 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 it was finally yes. And the car turns off the highway and we're there. Now, is it that my dad had forgotten where he was going and so when he said no, 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 we're not there yet, he was lost and just kind of trying to find his way forward? No. Uh, was it that he was being harsh and mean, saying no, we're not there yet? Well, no, he was right. See, my dad knew where the journey ended. He knew when to get off the highway. And he knew just the right time for us. We know from Genesis 15 that God always had the time in mind, 400 years. And at the end of Exodus 2, the answer now is yes. The time has arrived. From a human perspective, it feels perhaps as if God has been forgetful but now remembers But from the revelation of the Bible, we understand that God has been sticking to his plan all along. That he's been taking his people forward, yes, through pain and difficulty, but to a certain destination. Nothing's gone wrong. Nothing's gone on course. Everything is spot on as God had planned it. Now, we might wonder, why 400 years? Why the the delay? And I don't know. There is mystery here. It could have been four months, but it wasn't. It was 400 years. And we don't always know why. 
in God's good and perfect plan that he allows his people to go through such long periods of suffering. But we do know one thing, verse 25. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Know this, Christian. God is always concerned for his people. In every season, in every trial, throughout whatever we go through in life, every moment by every moment, he knows and he is concerned. Because he is the promise-keeping God who cares about his people and he will keep his promises to them. And he has made us some eternal promises that will never expire or wear out or get used up. Isn't that one of the great battles in our lives when suffering comes at us? And it will. Perhaps we're in the middle of it now. When we are completely overwhelmed and confused and we're looking around for answers, trying to make sense of what could possibly be going on. Why has God allowed this to happen? And we look around for the answers and we might find some comfort. But deep down inside, the the, the ultimate question is, does God care about what I am going through? You see, if you can get that clear in your mind that yes, he does then we have beneath us a rock that we can stand on when life is stormy and scary. We have a compass point to steer our lives by. We know that a promise-keeping God cares and knows about us. That is enough, isn't it, to wait for the answers to the other questions, the confusions over timing and the suffering. And so, Christian, don't doubt God's heart even if there is a delay. Of course, we sit here now, over 3,000 years later, in a much more privileged position, don't we? Because we can look back on history and see just how much God does care for his people. We look at the cross, the ultimate demonstration of a God who does care about a suffering and broken world. The cross where we see God's true rescuer, who has the ultimate power, actually able to pull off a rescue. And there we see that God is a rescuing God who never abandons his people and he will keep his eternal promises until we arrive at the new creation, a place of no pain and of no suffering. Let's pray. Father, we uh, confess this morning that it is often so hard to keep trusting in a world like this, trusting that you are a God who rescues, who remembers his promises. Father, please help us to be people who stand on these promises, who are utterly convinced of your care, and are able to stick with you, trusting in your goodness, until you bring us safely to the promised land. We pray that in your name. Amen.